Billy and Nick's worship team for bringing us to this point in the service. Good to see you all here. It's great to be back. If you're a visitor with us, um, my name is Jason. I have the honor of, of pastoring here at the church, leading with the elders, uh, five other men who love Jesus more than they love themselves. Billy is one of those men, and so it's a, an honor to be here with you today. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 and continue with the series that Brian Lamb started last uh, Sunday. And so if you were here, especially you men who, who got raked over the coals last week, it's the women's turn. And so um, I, have, I have a very dangerous task in front of me today. One, uh, it's, it's the combination of both jet lag and a man talking about the heart of women. Uh, and so that's what's going to happen this morning. We'll see how it goes. Um, I'm, I'm excited to open God's Word with you and continue that series. Um, as you get to Genesis 1, um, just a couple of things I would just say about um, the trip, having the privilege to go um, on the trip this year. Uh, for me, um, so uh, almost 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus sat down with his disciples. He said, all right, guys, here's your mission. Go make disciples of the nations. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke records it this way. Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. I want to start here in Jerusalem, then you go to Judea, Samaria, then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And at that moment, the gospel uh, began to go out, spreading west into Europe, south into Africa, east into Asia, ultimately crossing the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas. And so since that moment, the gospel has been going out, but the entire earth hasn't been reached yet. And to be um, at the village that we hiked to, um, to know that um, we were there for the fifth time that the word of God had been opened with these people, um, to be right there at the edge of where the gospel um, is um, versus where it hasn't been yet. Um, such a humbling honor to be there um, with these people. Um, and, and for me, um, to understand tangibly with my own eyes what it means uh, to be an unreached or a hard-to-reach people group. Uh, for the most part, the people groups here on earth who have not been reached with the Gospels um, are in that category of, of hard-to-reach, whether it's political, religious reasons that we, we aren't able to get in uh, to the country, or they just simply live on the top of a mountain and they're hard to get to. Um, but, but the point is this, Jesus launched the church almost 2,000 years ago, and it's still going out. And, and I would say this too, you know, the point isn't just that the gospel get there, it's that in the wake of the gospel, the church emerges, and the slow process of redemption begins to take place. And so for the team, we got to see these people, often, many of them hearing the gospel for the first time, and we were witnessing um, the, the, the gospel take root for the first time, planted in the hearts of these men and women and children, knowing that for years to come and now generations to come, the gospel will continue this process of redeeming what has been lost in the lives of these men and women. So um, just such an honor to get to go with the team that went from the youngest, Faith, who's eight years old, to the oldest among us, which when we left was me, but somehow in Filipino, um, West became the oldest. Um, I think that they gauge age by the look of wisdom in your eyes, and evidently he, he rose to the top. He was the oldest one there, um, and, and, but now we're back, and, and that's, that's me. So uh, anyway, good to be back, team that went. Thank you for praying for them, for sending us. And the mission's still going out. Now, today we're going to talk about redemption here on the ground. We're a place where the gospel has reached. And so now redemption is taking place, taking root in our lives, transforming us. 
Um, we're in a series called Family Matters, looking specifically at um, how the gospel transforms and redeems, starting with the man last week in biblical masculinity, looking today at the heart of the woman. And next week, we're going to talk about family discipleship, how um, the gospel continues this process of redeeming and sanctifying and transforming us into the image of Jesus, one life at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time. And so um, we're going to continue on with that this morning. All right, so to get started... Um, Brian Lamb talked last week about how, at least from his perspective, few things in our culture and society are more broken than the heart of the man. Some of you were here for that, and he talked about how in our culture and society, it seems like the measure of a man is that he simply has a job, he's able to hold down a job, possibly has a career, and has a family back home. And if he achieves that, he somehow achieved the pinnacle of success. And so um, he opened God's word with you last week to see that that's not how God measures the success of the heart of a man, that biblical masculinity is defined by how a man leads as a servant, but in his home, in his church, and in his society, humbly laying himself down for the sake of others. So today we're going to talk about the heart of the woman. And we're going to look at how, despite the way culture defines success as a woman, so here's some things that maybe you can relate to as as ladies. Um, Culture would say to you this, if you're going to be successful, you must have a clean house. At least it always needs to be clean when people show up, right? Um, You need to have the latest hairdo, hair color. Um, You need to have uh, a, you need to be wearing the latest trends in clothing. Um, You need to have a firm and fit body. Um, And you also need to be the kind of woman whose friends don't talk about her behind her back when she's not around. If you can achieve those things, at least, you know, the Facebook version of that, then you've somehow arrived as the woman everybody wants to be like. And, uh, and, And that's not at all what God's word says about the heart of a woman and what he's doing in your lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start with blueprint first, what God designed as good, and then we're going to walk through how brokenness entered in and how it distorts and and skews the heart of a woman, and then look at a brief narrative from Jesus where he interacts with two two women and reveals some things about how um, he wants to redeem those beautiful God-given desires in your heart. So just a baseline understanding. We're going to start in Genesis 1, uh, looking at verse 27 together. Um, so many distorted views on men and women in our culture and society. Um, lots of reasons for that. I would say the primary and first um, uh, element uh, or catalyst to the distortion of the role of the woman is uh, the absence of the man. Brian talked about that last week. I, I agree with that. I think um, so many women uh, in our culture and society have been thrusted into roles they weren't necessarily designed for yet, rose to the occasion in the absence of a man, and so things get distorted. I think we can also look at things like the feminist movement. And, uh, and so we're going to start with just a, a biblical baseline understanding of what it means to be a woman and a man, and then from there move individually uh, into the heart of the woman. So baseline understanding, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 27 This is the creation account. It's the macro overview account. Verse 27, God says, so God created man in his own image. If we stop right there, it seems like he's talking about males, man, in his own image. And if we stop right there, at this point in the creation account, man is is the climax. But that's not where he stops. He says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So whatever God created in terms of value and purpose in the man, he's also created in value and purpose in the woman. So this skewed perspective that somehow because man was created first or man was created to be a leader, he somehow has higher value or more importance in the eyes of God is is not true. It's distorted truth. 
From the very beginning, God creates male and female on the sixth day, the climax of creation. It says this, male and female, I've created them to reflect my image. Now, arguably, I'd say there is no position of higher value than to be the one on earth, the object here on earth created to reflect God's glory. Now, all of creation has some sense of reflection of who God is. Fingerprints, his, his qualities are seen, his strengths are seen in what has been created, Romans 1. However, distinct from any part of creation, whether it's a vegetable or it's a dog or it's a horse or it's a sunset, right? Set apart from is male and female with this distinct role of highest value among creation to reflect the glory of God. Male and female. So a baseline understanding, men and women are created with, at this point, an equal purpose and with equal value. Now, where it gets distinct is when we get into function, how this plays out practically. So last week, we looked at the servant leader role for men. Now, this week, we're going to look at this beautiful complementary role of women to have this, uh, this nurturing uh, role amongst God's creation. So at this point, God says, the end of the sixth day, what? This is very good. What I've created is very good. Now, when we slip over into chapter 2 of Genesis, now we get the micro version where, where God zooms in on the creation of man and woman. We're going to see more detail about the distinction of the creation of man and woman. So chapter 2 in Genesis, uh, we're going to just go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So, what did God say at the end of each creation day? It is good. It is good. At the end of the sixth day, he says it is very good. So right now, when God looks at Adam here on earth, he says it's not good yet. So he's not done with the sixth day. Just creating Adam by himself is not good. It's not complete. It is not good that the man should be alone. This idea of being alone is not an emotional state of loneliness, like Adam was just sulking and saying, I'm just so lonely. It's the idea of being singular. So when God looks at creation and he sees man, he's seeing it's not complete yet. It's not good that Adam would be singular by himself. Creation isn't done. It's not good without something else being added to it. It's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. Now, there's... There's some distortion that comes out of this verse. I'm just going to address it. Um, there are those, in, even within the church, who will distort the leadership role of the man to somehow um, create this idea that man has higher purpose and higher value than woman because he's the leader. And see right here, he, he, God creates the woman to just be his helper. Okay? There's a big problem with that when we read the Bible faithfully, and we're going to address it. Okay? Because it's not at all what God's saying, that somehow the woman is to be completely subordinate both in value and function and worth, and she's just to go get his tools when he needs them. And, and there would be those who would, who would translate it that way. And here's the problem. The word that we translate here, helper, more often in the Old Testament gets used to describe God than anybody else. Now think about that. I'll give you a few examples. So first five books of your Old Testament, more than likely, were actually written down by Moses. He's the one who authored. He wrote this down. We look at one of his other writings in Deuteronomy 33:29. Look at how he, the same author, uses the same word. Look at what he says. He says, Happy are you, O Israel, talking about the nation of Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your 
triumph. God just got described as the shield of help. So, if we go back to Genesis 2 and go, see, the woman's just supposed to be the helper. She's just kind of lesser value. She just does what the man says. Then we have to say the same thing about the Lord. Is that true? No. God doesn't become lesser in value or lesser in function simply because he's the helper. I would say this. Another way you could render this word helper is rescuer, especially when it gets applied to God. The one who steps in when a situation has been um, reached that is impossible and the one with the responsibility can't overcome it, God steps in as the helper, the, 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 res, the rescuer, the savior. That's the word being used to describe the role of women here as a helper. Not subordinate doormats to be used to accomplish personal agendas. But the word here that we talk about being fit, the word complement, to come alongside man, equal value and purpose, different in function, we're going to look at that next, but same in value and purpose, coming together with man to take what is not good and make it very good. To come together with man and beautifully reflect the glory, the radiant majesty of God here on earth. And in no way, women, are you created or designed to be doormats. Now, we're going to talk about brokenness next and how it ends up playing out that way in a lot of cultures and society, which then leads to the reaction of feminist movements and how it all gets distorted. So if we look at the fall, Genesis 3, um, and you follow the, the, the conversation between the woman and the serpent, and you ultimately see the sin, you're going to see two major um, breakdowns in what God has created very good. First of all, um, despite the fact that the dialogue is primarily between Eve and the serpent, Adam is there with her. And so I would say the first step towards the fall of man is Adam leaving his post of leadership, stepping out of the way between his wife and the enemy and letting her fend for himself, for herself. And this begins this downslide towards fallenness, brokenness, sin entering the world. But then in a similar fashion, Eve participates in the sin. And we see that she's led by her desires when she sees that the fruit is desirable. So this, this, this God-given, beautiful thing that women have, these, these emotions and these desires begin to get fixated on the wrong thing. And she begins to follow her desires and ultimately disobeying God. Now, what she, she's also, like if you look at it from that perspective, she's following Adam's lead, isn't she? His, desire, his decision to not lead is a leadership decision, leaving her to her own. And so then what we have in the end of Genesis 3, God steps in. He calls them both into account and says, now what I've created very good is broken. It's fallen. It's marred by sin. And so at the end of chapter 3, God explains then the, the curse. And even in the curse of the fall, there's distinction between what the woman will suffer and what the man will suffer. Right? Created equal value, equal purpose, but distinct in function. Uh, verse 16, chapter 3 of Genesis. To the woman, he said, this is God, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. God came through on that, right, ladies? And, and, and nobody in the room would argue right, that that is solely the woman's pain to bear. There's no way a man can step in and go, you know what, I'll take this. When you were good with the first two kids... I'll do this third. We just can't do it. Why? Because distinctly in function, right, the woman has that role. And every time a woman is experiencing the birth 
the, the pains of childbirth, there's a reminder, a tangible reminder that the world is fallen. So he says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The man's curse, different, distinct. His is going to come from the hard labor and the toil with the earth. But then look at what he says here at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, some would read that verse and go, see, this is the way God created it, right? All the woman's affections would be pointed at the man, and the man would rule and dominate her. No, no, no. This is post-fall description here. This is after the sin now, how things are going to be. Childbirth will be painful, and the woman will desire the man, and the man will rule over her. Now, to understand fully what's being painted here, we've got to jump forward to the next chapter in Genesis, so let's do that for just a second. We're going to look at one verse from Genesis 4. Let me set the stage. So now the curse has happened. Adam and Eve are um, kicked out of the garden. Adam goes to work. He's providing for himself and his family with hard work and labor and blood and sweat. And he's living out the curse. And every time they have a child, Eve is living out the curse. And this tangible reminder, what? That man abandoned his post as a leader and woman has followed her desires into disobedience with God. So here's what happens. Cain and Abel enter the picture in Genesis 4. Many of you know the story. Uh, Cain becomes jealous and envious of his brother Abel, and anger begins to well up in his heart, and ultimately he kills his brother. Well, before he does, while that anger is welling up, God says something to Cain that explains what God just said in Genesis 3.16. So Genesis 4, if you've got your Bible, you want to look at verse 7 with me for just a second. So Cain is angry. Verse 7, God says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. So he's saying, hey, hey, careful, Cain. I can already see sin crouching at your door. This anger welling up inside of you, it's not going to end well. And then look at what he says to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Does that sound familiar? The very next chapter explaining what God meant, I believe, when he said to Eve, your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. What's he talking about? Distortion of what was created good. What God created in the man to be good as a servant leader, now distorted by sin, he will become, he will become a, a dominant bully. He will force his strength on, on the woman and other men in his culture and society with the attention of what? Ruling. And, and you don't have to look very hard to see this. Um, Right? It's inerrant in men, in our flesh, in our sinfulness. We want to rule. Whether it's our home, whether it's our workplace, whatever it is, we want to be at the top of the food chain. The opposite of the way Jesus led. I was thinking, like, last night, I um, was hanging out with some friends, and uh, anybody remember Tech Mobile on the Nintendo? Okay. We had, a, we had a Tech Mobile tournament. If you're under the age of 30, you have no idea what we're talking about. Um, but there was this game, and it's, oh my gosh, it's ridiculous. But it was one of the first football games that came out. It was for Nintendo called Tecmo Bowl. And so here's the thing. I didn't like it when it came out in 19, whatever it was, 89 or 90. Um, I still don't like it, but here's the point. I had to draw a number from a hat, and I got put in the bracket. Now all of a sudden, I'm engaged. Matter of fact, when we left, Hallie was like, I didn't, you were so involved, so engaged in that, that football game. You, I didn't know you liked Tecmo Bowl. I, I don't. What was the point? Why? I got put on a bracket. So what's... What does my sinful flesh want to do? I want to be at the top. Now, 
I got my, my cart handed to me. I didn't, I was, I think, number one on the loser bracket. But here's the point, man, right? You put us on a bracket, where do we want to be? I want to be at the top. I want to rule. It's a bent and distorted leadership, beautiful, created leadership quality in men. Bent and distorted, we, we choose, we desire to dominate. Dominate the house, dominate the culture, the society, the workplace. We want to be at the top. In a similar fashion, ladies, this beautiful desire, this nurturing, emotional desire. You know, there's a reason why you're more emotional than men. God created you that way. And when those desires were very good, such a beautiful compliment you were to the man. But when man steps out of his roles and his leadership strengths get distorted and bent towards selfishness and the woman steps out of her roles and she begins to follow distorted and bent desires and emotions... Families crumble, cultures crumble, societies crumble. And so when God says to her, your desire will be for your husband, he's talking about distorted desires. In the same way that sin is crouching at your door and desiring to overtake you, ladies, you're going to wrestle with those bent desires. And your husband, in, the same, in, a, in, a, in a similar fashion, I created his heart to lead you well as a servant leader. Now his heart is going to be distorted and bent, and he's going to try to rule over you. And since that moment in human history, that's played out, right? It's played out that way. Men, if we get to that point where we just can't dominate, what do we do? We bow out. I don't want to be involved. If I can't be it, I don't want to be involved. And ladies, many of you being left, thrust into positions you weren't created to, are left with these, these desires, these emotions, this nurturing heart that if not redeemed by Christ will lead you into destruction, and ultimately into death. Now, this is going to set us up for Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 is where we're going next, if you want to turn there. We're going to look at a situation with Jesus and how a situation unfolds between two women, revealing both the bent and broken desires and the other woman will reflect a redeemed desires for what matters. So let me set the stage. Um, this is Luke 10. Jesus has sent out the 72. Um, he's also had a conversation with a lawyer who asked him, how do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And in, in the process of Jesus trying to teach this man about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, the man then says, well, Jesus, how do I know who my neighbor is? Because that, I mean, I just need to know, right? And so Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan. It's a story of a man who stops along the side of the road to help somebody of a different ethnicity who's, who's, uh, whose body is broken, who's been passed up by his own people. And, he, and this good Samaritan stops to help this man, to serve this man, to take care of his wounds, to put him up in a hotel to make sure he's taken care of him. Jesus said, that's how you know who your neighbor is. It's not the people who necessarily look like you. It's the people who are in need, the people who God places in your life who, who, who need something. Those are the people that you're called to love as your neighbor. So in no way, as we start this next story, is Jesus against serving people, okay? So I want you to get that out of it. However, here's what happens. From that situation, Jesus then, with his disciples, enters into another village, and so we'll pick this up in 38. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. I'm going to stop there. Um, so what's about to unfold, I feel like I had the opportunity to kind of watch in real time uh, in the Philippines on the hike to, the, to this, this new village. So like Jeff tasked us with taking to this new village um, along with the love of Jesus um, a bunch of food. We took food for the, these folks 
up on the mountain where they live, they can harvest uh, potatoes. So they've been living off of water out of the stream and potatoes for, for, for a long time. And so it's a real gift to show up with things like rice, and we showed up with noodles and with canned sardines and those sort of things. So we show, showed up to give, yet somehow they spun it on us and turned it into this Thanksgiving feast, and they just rolled out the red carpet for us. And it was, you know, on one hand, we just really felt guilty about that. Like, we brought this for you, and they, they, 50 pounds of rice we carried up the mountain for them, and they turned around and cooked half of it for us, okay? Yet, so there's this desire, like, we hadn't even been there, I bet, four minutes and this steaming hot bamboo leaf full of potatoes there to take care of us and take care of our needs. This young, young girl, young lady, she's probably 19, 20 years old, lays it at our feet and then she scuttles off. And then a few minutes later, we mentioned, you know what? We just drank like 20 gallons of water coming up here. We've got to go back tomorrow. We're going to need more water. And just within a few seconds here, she shows up with some, some water out of the waterfall for us, just taking care of our needs. Got to see for just a moment this beautiful heart of a woman just here to serve we see it over and over again in the Gospels, these women who walked alongside Jesus and his disciples serving, making sure they had all the things that they needed. And, and that's something beautiful about the way God has designed the heart of a woman, to notice details, to see things that we as men don't see. Amen? Right? We're, we're, we're big picture for the most part. Right? We minor on details. Those things don't seem to matter to us, yet details do matter. And so know what happens is Jesus, Jesus and his boys are going to enter into a village, much like we enter into a village, complete strangers, and they're going to do the same thing for them. And so here's what happens. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Got to see this in real time just a few days ago. She's going to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. She welcomes him into whose house? Her house. Now, the first thing that happens in the heart and the mind of a woman, typically, at this moment is what? A to-do list. I've got, I've got visitors coming. What needs to be cleaned? What needs to be fixed? What needs to be rearranged? What, needs to, what do we need to get from the market? Like, right? The to-do list begins to roll out. All the things that must be done. Coming out of this beautiful, nurturing, good desire that God put there. Otherwise, like it's, it's so funny when we plan things with our life group. If you leave the men in charge, no details will be taken care of. We know what day it's going to happen on, and we know where we're going to meet, maybe. Well, what are the kids going to eat? I don't know. Well, what are we going to eat? I don't know. Just how we are. We don't think, we'll figure it out when we get there. Women care, right? You have this beautiful, compassionate, caring heart. You care. You don't only want your visitors to have something to eat. You want them to have something to eat that they want to eat, right? You want to know. What do you desire? What do you like? What do you want? How can I make sure that you know that you're loved? And this is where this starts with Martha. She invites Jesus into her house, to-do list, all the things that need to be taken care of. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary, Martha and Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Can you already begin to feel the tension brewing? One sister, her house, we've got visitors. Where's the other sister? She's off in the other, other room, sitting on her duff, talking to Jesus. And, and you can already begin to feel, right? You don't even have to finish the story. And you know, tension is brewing. Well, sure enough, verse 40, while Mary is there at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much what? Serving. Well, we already know that the Lord isn't against serving. He himself is a servant leader. He himself 
sat down with his disciples at dinner and washed their feet. And so we know he's not against serving, but the problem isn't that she's serving. The problem is what she's distracted by her serving. Distracted by her serving. Now, so what God placed in the woman's heart to care about details, to care about people, to want people to feel more than just welcome, to, to want them to feel loved, has now somehow become, became, become a distraction for her. And we're going to see something unfold where her emotions begin to get caught up in the to-do list. And she begins to neglect the most important thing. She's distracted by the to-do list. She's distracted by taking care of Jesus and his knees. She's distracted by the details. She's distracted by much serving. Now, look at what she does next. So she's distracted by much serving. She goes up to Jesus and she says to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve you all alone? I don't feel like I'm making up that tone of voice either. I really don't. I think I'm probably softening it up a little bit, right, ladies? You know that moment. I'm in here serving. I'm in here working. I'm in here taking care of all his needs, and you're sitting in there on your, on your duff. Lord, can you do something about this? Do you not care? What a thing to say to Jesus, do you not care? Of course he cares. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve you all alone? And then look at what she says. Tell her then to help me. Ladies, when those emotions and those affections get distorted and fixated on the wrong things, all of a sudden, your agenda becomes everybody else's agenda. All of a sudden, what is important to you in that moment becomes important. You want to become important to everybody. Right? You don't want us to do the dishes. You want us to want to do the dishes. Right? I'll give you an example. I could give you hundreds of how this played out in our marriage. So there's something about the way God created my wife to where, like, I don't know how, but somehow her brain is hardwired into the sink. And when she knows when there are dirty dishes in it, she can be in the other room, she can be in another state, and she knows there are dirty dishes. And so something doesn't allow her brain to shut down and go to sleep if there's a dirty dish in the sink. I didn't know this when I got married. Nobody went over that with me in premarital counseling. So I didn't get it. Why, for me, I got no problem going to sleep with dishes in the sink. Matter of fact, I sleep better sometimes just knowing those dishes are in there preparing to be washed for a couple days. No problem at all. And I had to learn this lesson the hard way. She lay down, lights are out, said our prayers. It's like all of a sudden something comes on. There's dirty dishes in the sink. Yeah. Who cares? I care. I had to learn. She didn't want me to do the dishes. She wanted me to want to do the dishes. Now, here's the reality. I don't want to do the dishes. I still don't. But nine times out of ten, I do them. And it's not because what matters to her has now all of a sudden started mattering to me. It's because she matters to me. I don't give a rip about dishes. I'll throw them all away and we'll go plastic and I don't care. Let it ferment. It makes it more challenging to wash it if it's three days old. So the point is that we're created different. What matters to her doesn't always matter to me. What's Martha saying? Jesus, would you make what matters to me matter to her? And matter to you while you're at it. Don't you care? 
And all of a sudden, these distorted emotions and what began as this desire to nurture and take care of Jesus and set him up well and show him love tangibly has now got fixated on the to-do list and the details, and now she wants her agenda to become everybody else's agenda. Now, I know it doesn't happen in your homes, but it happens. Verse 41, Jesus answers. And I'm so glad this is a story about Jesus and Mary and Martha and not about me and Mary and Martha. I have no idea how I would have responded. So in verse 41, Jesus responds. He said, the, verse 41 says, but the Lord answered her, being Martha. She just went off on him. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You notice what he didn't say? You are anxious and troubled about evil things. You're anxious and troubled about things that don't matter. He didn't say that. He just said what? You're anxious and troubled about many things. you got a lot of things on your mind, and therefore you have a lot of things on your heart, and now those things have what? They've captured your affections, and they've caused you to be anxious and troubled. Something that happens in the heart of a woman when desires some beautiful, nurturing, loving, compassionate desires get fixated on the wrong thing, is this, the woman will become easily anxious about things that she can do nothing to, to control. Any of you ladies ever find yourself there? Anxious about something, and you may even know it, it's outside of your control. Anxious about things, and oftentimes you bring them to us and we listen. And what do we say, man? Well, we can't do anything about it. Why are we worried about it? Well, hang on, slow down, because she cares. And because if she didn't care, it wouldn't be brought to your attention. But then men have this responsibility to do what? To help lead the affections and desires and to gently say, you know what? That is, that, that is troubling. However, we can't do anything about it. So let's not let it captivate us. There's a difference between thinking about a problem and being captivated by it. Another way anxiety wells up is sometimes the heart of a woman will get anxious about things that aren't even real, just possibilities of what could happen. Do, you, do any of you find yourself struggling with that? Just knowing that it is a possibility causes this anxious, and you may even know it, but still you have a hard time, what, controlling it, becoming anxious about what? Things that are outside of your control, maybe even things that, that aren't even real yet. What is that? Where does that come from? It comes from this beautiful, God-given heart with a capacity to love and to nurture and to feel things that we as men don't feel inherently. And when it gets distorted and fixated on the wrong things, it turns into anxiety. And in this particular case, worried about things that are less important. He didn't tell her that she was worried about evil things. He said what? Many things. Now, here's what happens, though. If in that moment, those emotions and those desires aren't controlled. Remember, back to Genesis 4, sin is crouching out your door. Its desire is for you. You must do what? Rule over it. And in that moment, if the woman doesn't rule over her desires and just lets them continue to lead her, then it turns into the next word here, troubled. You see, anxiety in this passage is internal. Troubled here is external. It actually can be translated turbulent when the emotions of the woman become turbulent. That old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Yeah, it's a, it's a true reality. When the desires of the woman that God placed there with 
with beautiful, God-given, glorious purpose get distorted and fixated on the wrong things, and it isn't ruled over or controlled, it can easily become turbulent. And ladies, you have this power to set the emotional climate of any room like that. You don't even have to say anything. And we know something's wrong. The better question isn't, is something wrong? The better question is, I know something's wrong. Do you feel like it telling me about it? Because we know. The whole room can be set on edge like that. And that's what happens when these beautiful, nurturing, God-given emotions become distorted, fixated on the wrong things, aren't controlled, and they just run rampant. And she, like Eve in Genesis 3, just follows her desires. No leadership, no godly servant leader alongside her to say, listen, I'm glad you see those things because I wouldn't see them. However, let's control the things we can. Let's let go of the things that we can. The heart of the fallen woman will lead her towards destruction and death, towards an anxious and a troubled heart. So many things that, that come out of this, um, by the way, of bad fruit in the woman's heart. One is... Um, comparison. Um, so many women in our culture today measure their worth by comparing themselves to other women. Men do it too, but there's just something fragile in the woman's heart when she looks at another woman and she compares herself. Perfectionism is another way this plays out as a bad fruit. I think this is what's going on in Martha's heart. Like, it's just not enough. Got to keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. He was just at another village, and I don't have any idea how, how, how well that they took care of him, so I've got to compare myself to them. I've got to do a better job. I've got to make, I've got to make him feel welcome and loved and, and all these things, ladies. Gosh, Facebook is so destructive whenever it plays into this. I'm not against Facebook, but when you look through Facebook comparing yourself to other women, when you look in the mirror at yourself and you gauge your value and worth based on how you compare to the woman on the front of the magazine or your friend, when you look at your marriage and you compare your husband to their husbands or this false idea of how awesome their husbands are, and, and, right? And you begin to what? Find your identity in distorted things. Now, we don't know how far Martha was going to take it. Lord Jesus shut it down, didn't he? Wasn't mean to her. He just said, "Martha, Martha, listen. You're anxious, and now your anxiety has become troubled. What was in your heart has now begun to come out of it. I can see it. You're troubled about many things." Before we finish, verse forty-two. I just want to share with you an observation that I have, and feel free to send me emails saying you disagree. One of the things that Brian Lamb talked about last week, talking about biblical masculinity, just wholesale observing our culture, um, and many other um, folks have made the same observation, that we are a culture that is rich with um, 30-year-old boys who know how to shave. they got a full-grown body, but on the inside, they're still boys, still playing in immaturity, still wrestling with boredom and, and playing games. And here's the reality that I, that I think is, is similarly true. Our society is mass-producing 30-year-old women with 
identities rooted in fleeting things resulting in fragile adolescent self-esteems. Here's what I mean by that. The things that should hurt a 12-year-old girl's feelings on the playground still seem to penetrate the heart of a woman and cause grown women to doubt their worth, to see themselves with distorted identity rather than what? Seeing themselves, seeing yourself as an image bearer of the Most High God. What so-and-so is doing in their family somehow has trumped the fact that your daughters are the Most High God. You were created with the same value and purpose as Adam, set apart from any piece of creation to do what? To reflect the glory of God. I hurt for you. See it in almost every woman in my life, this fragile self-esteem that so quickly can be shaken or broken rather than standing rooted in a solid identity knowing that Christ rules and reigns in your life. He sets your worth and purpose and nobody can touch it. It doesn't matter what the girl looks like. Who's been photoshopped, by the way, right? Who's paid thousands of dollars to be manipulated to look that way who look like a clown in 30 years, right? Despite the fact that you know those things, yet we see over and over again these young girls growing up, what? Finding their worth and value in fleeting things, many small things, the to-do list of our culture and society. I love what Jesus says in verse 42. While Martha has been anxious and troubled about many things, Mary, on the other hand, verse 42, one thing is what? necessary. What a powerful word. You see, it wasn't the fact that she cared. It was the fact that the things she cared about began to rule her heart to the point where she lashed out at Jesus and her sister. And he says to her, Martha, it's not that you were trying to do bad things for me. But here's the problem. You've neglected the most important thing, the thing that is actually necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In a practical sense, in the same way, men have been called to lead in your homes. That means leading in practical ways like stewardship, managing household, taking care of vehicles, all those kinds of things. But more importantly, men, you've been called to lead out in spiritual matters. As Brian said last week, to set the spiritual climate of your home but we go back to Genesis 2. Man, you're not meant to do that alone. God brought a helper, someone of equal value and purpose, different function to complement you in that. Ladies, you've been given this role to come alongside him and nourish, nurture and nourish the spiritual climate of your homes. Sometimes that means reminding him, it's okay, you're a helper. Sometimes that means when the to-do list is long, and you're almost out of time for the day, you step back and you say, do I want to be Martha or do I want to be Mary? Do I want to be consumed by all the small things or do I want to take these last remaining few moments of the day with my husband or with my children or just in my own heart and mind and give it to the Lord and do the thing that is necessary? Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. It's the irony of doing dishes, right? You wake up the next day and there's more dishes to do, right? 
you clean your house, you overwork yourself to make sure that it's ready to go, and what happens as soon as the people leave? It's trashed again. Fleeting things, things that don't matter, things that don't last. Mary chose the thing that will last. It won't be taken away from her. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, communing with the Son of God. Here's my challenge, ladies. Just want to challenge you maybe to consider a practical challenge this week in your own lives. Um, I want to challenge you to, to one time this, just once, okay? I know I'm stretching here. Just one time this week, I want you to set aside the small things for the thing that matters. And here's what I, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean this. I don't mean come home with a to-do list, come in the door, getting it all knocked out and done so that you have time to sit down with your family and read the Bible or pray. What I mean is, while there's still things on the list, it's hard. I want you to, to make a cognitive decision. Don't want to be Mary or Martha here. I'm going to set aside some things. I'm going to go to bed with laundry in the dryer or dishes in the sink or something still on the list to do to save time, to set apart time for the things that matter. Okay? Now, husbands, understand the way that God's designed a woman's heart Here's the deal. That's challenging. It is. It is really hard. So don't go in, don't go home today and say, all right, we're not doing dishes. You know, like when you hear pastor, we don't have to clean our hands. Like, I'm just saying, ladies, it has to happen in your own heart. I really want you to weigh this out. Allow those God-given beautiful desires to play out, not in the leftovers of what you have left, but in when you have some energy left, sit down with your kids, open the Bible, read a verse with them and talk about what it means. Sit down and talk about the gospel. Lead out in, in prayer with your family. Remind your husband to do so. I'm going to challenge you to do that. It's on you, whether or not you want to do that. So here's the thing. No matter who you are today, there's something in this for you. Okay? Let's talk about the ladies first. A lot of our ladies in the room are, are married, and so you're able to relate very practically to what we talked about. Some of you are young ladies and not married. Here's how this plays out for you. Um, you're getting a beautiful blueprint of what you're shooting for in life. Last week, you heard about the man that God is bringing into your life who you should be looking for. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen. This is who God is calling you to look for in a spouse. Some of you um, are choosing to be single or you've been widowed, and so you're thinking, I'll never be married again, so how does this apply to me? Let me just say this. Every woman in this room is a part of this family, and the way God has created your heart still applies in every environment you go into. And so even if maybe you don't have a husband or kids, um, you've been called to this family to live out your God-given design and role and function, to complement the men in this church, to be not just a grandmother in your own home, but a grandmother in this church, to not just be a woman in your own home, but also be a woman in this place. Men, this is not a set of tools to go home and beat your wife up with. This is allowing you just a small insight into how God's designed her heart so that you can come alongside her, unlike Adam did in Genesis 3, and lead her through her emotions. Don't squash her emotions. Don't squash the fact that she sees things that you don't see. See value in that and realize that she's the complement to you. However, don't let her desires lead her. Gently step in as Jesus did and say, listen, let's take a step back and make sure that we're not getting our priorities upside down. Let's make sure we're making the main things the main things. Let's look at what we can control and what we can't. Encourage her, pray for her, help her, men, in this. There's something in here for everybody today. I want to pray for us now and invite the worship team to come back up. And, um, and here's what I want to do. So if you're here today and you're not a, a Christian, um, 
Maybe you grew up in a home where God wasn't taught or talked about, and so this is all, who is God, what is the Bible, who's Jesus, all kind of foreign to you. I want you to know that the God who created you, we just read about in Genesis 1, he created you, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, he wants to have a relationship with you. That's the main thing you need to hear today. He wants you to come in faith and become his child. And you don't have to fix it all up before you get here. You don't have to wait until you get your life right. Matter of fact, he says, tell you what, come to me um, with, without doing that. Bring me your mess and let me fix it in you. And that's an invitation to everybody in the room today, that by faith you would believe in Jesus and, and receive the forgiveness that he's offering. Allow him to wash over your life with grace to begin this beautiful, long process of redeeming all that has been broken, bent, or lost, or skewed, or distorted. Allow him to begin that process in your heart. It, it happens by faith, by simply coming to him and saying, I believe. I'm turning my life over to you. Please forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean and do a work in my life. And if that's you, I want to invite you to do something courageous today. Um, you don't have to know all the answers or even you don't know the right questions to ask, but we'll have prayer partners at the back. In this back corner, if you look at the back, back left, our connect corner. And they're there. They're going to be there for you to talk with you and to pray for you. I'm going to encourage you to go talk with one of them about what it means to become a Christian. For those of you here today and you are Christians, um, I, I hope that you've been challenged. Ladies, I'm going to pray for you as well. I don't lay this out there in any way thinking that this is easy to hear um, and in no way, um, in a way where I would look down on you. I've, I'm, I'm in last week's sermon. That's where my struggles are, <laughs> okay? Um, but I want to pray for you that what God has created in you that is beautiful and good and right, that, that comes alongside a man in this completing fashion and reflecting the glory of God, that God would continue redeeming that in you. I know those struggles are there, but it's the Lord Jesus who can redeem those struggles and take what the enemy intends for harm and for evil and for destruction and turn them and bend them towards what is good. I'm gonna pray for you in that. So let's pray together, and Jason and Jen, if y'all would come back up and lead us. Let's pray.